It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr. Bean, and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike e-bikes that are cool AF. Hello, welcome to a very special edition of the Spurs Show. Coming from you live from the Albany, Great Portland Street. A little bit louder than the last show, but not that much. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us around the world tonight. Um, We are here at the Albany, Great Portland Street for our monthly live events. You can be at these monthly live events by going to season.spurshow.net. The next one is next Wednesday, November the 6th with... Gray and Roberts at the Beehive, December the 2nd, Crooks and Archibald at the 100 Club. Oh, no, you got start. it. Good start. Uh, Oxford Street. And in January, we've got Clive Allen. Go to season.spurshow.net. Or if you just want to come to the Christmas show, live.spurshow.net. Firstly, please welcome my co host, Mr. Theo Delaney. Hello. That's very decent of you, Dave. Our technicians brought a few napkins to. Mop up the mess. Uh, and joining us tonight, uh, a, a man who, well, before this book, has written a great book about Alan Ball, wonderful books on cricket and rugby, but has turned his attention to probably what most Spurs fans in their 
60s plus, 65 plus, will say, without doubt, is the greatest Spurs player they ever witnessed. And we were lucky enough to have him in, how many years ago, Theo, do you remember? 2013? Yeah. Literally, sadly, very shortly before his stroke. Yeah. We... uh, it was, a, it was in Covent Garden, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was in the Brazilian, the Brazilian, Brazilian and Guanabara. he was absolutely fantastic. Oh, he was wow, amazing. Wow, it, it, was, it was incredible. Yeah. So we're, tonight we're talking about the life and career of Jimmy Greaves with the author of this wonderful book called Natural, The Jimmy Greaves Story. Please welcome David Tassell. <laughs> Everything's going wrong, isn't it? Anyway, David, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. My pleasure. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you've obviously already written books, many books on sport, covering football, cricket, rugby. I mentioned the book there about the biography of Alan Ball. What made you write this book on Greaves? And also, how easy was it to get access to all the incredible people you got in the book? Was there anyone, and was there anyone who then went, no, I'm not going to do this? Yeah, I mean, the starting point is, I guess, I'm a product of the age that I was brought up in. I, I was kind of a child of the 70s, so caught the very end of Jimmy Greaves's career. Most of the books I've written have been about people from the 70s, Alan Ball, you mentioned, Malcolm Allison, Tommy Doherty, Derek Dugan, Tony Gregg in cricket. So I'm fascinated by that era. I love sitting and immersing myself in, a, in an age that I grew up in. Um, and Jimmy was, I guess, one of the biggest names of that era who... I didn't feel had really been served properly by an author. He'd written mm. several of his own autobiographies, about six versions at different stages of his life. Um, and I, I think I always feel that an, an autobiography only gives you part of the story. It gives you know a very narrow view. And Jimmy particularly wasn't someone who was particularly good at kind of analysing what made him so good. And I wanted to look at that and also kind of put his career in, into a little bit of context. The starting point was contacting his agent, Terry Baker, and finding out if the family would be supportive of of a project because I knew that I really needed their help if I was to be able to get to the people that I wanted to speak to. Um, Happily, they were very willing to kind of come on board, open up their contacts book. And it's interesting, you you asked about if anyone Mm. hadn't, hadn't, hadn't wanted to speak. I think... Of all the books I've written, you know, I've written about people like Tommy Doherty, Malcolm Allison, people who can divide opinion. And it's often as telling when you're writing about those people when you get the refusals and you ring up someone and say, I'm writing a book about Alan Ball. Would you like to have a chat? No, I don't want to talk about him. Because people still mostly are decent enough that if they haven't got something good to say about someone, they'd rather not say anything. Jimmy Greaves was the first person I've written about where literally no one said, no, I don't want to talk to you. Um, Everybody... Was, was fantastic, and it was clear there's such a groundswell of goodwill out there towards him. And I don't think it's just because people feel sorry for the fact that he's, he's now very ill. I think just genuinely throughout his career, he made a lot of friends, a lot of fans, and people are happy to speak about him and, and had nothing but good things to say about him. Wow, that's lovely. Um, and how long did the book, what was the process, how long did it take you to research it and and then who when you when you set out this book who do you then go right i have to interview this one that one that one out what's the process my process is kind of almost looking at each of his clubs and 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 you start off okay chelsea who do i think i can get to who you know and and in the case of the start of his career it's 
sadly it's a case for who's still around who have i maybe spoken to before that i can get to who can maybe put me in touch with other people so frank blundstone for instance was um one of his jimmy's colleagues at chelsea i'd interviewed him at length before knew him very well from talking about tommy doherty because he'd worked with him so kind of started with him the network gradually builds you ask you know can can you put me in touch with so and so and he does or you know club Press officers are very good at, um, I think clubs increasingly these days are getting better at keeping their former players in the fold and doing stuff mm. with them. So it's, it's quite easy to track down a lot of those people. Um, so that's the process, really going club by club, looking at a list of the key people that he played with, figuring out who's still alive. Mm. Um, you know, I was lucky, for example, that I spoke to Alan Gilzean at great length, um, probably about two mm. months before he died. So you, know, you, you, you kind of get a little bit lucky as well along the way. Um, but there are key people like, you know, Gilzeem was obvious that someone I wanted to speak yeah. to because of their great relationship and their great partnership. Um, but I wanted to kind of dig a bit deeper. I wanted to speak to some of the people that had played with him at Barnet and had, and had been with him during the period when he was you know, mm. suffering from alcoholism, wanted to speak to the key people in his TV career. So I think there was, there was only maybe one or two who I tried to get to and couldn't quite do it because timings didn't work out. Um, so over the course of what was a year, really, in, in right. terms of writing, researching, I, I was kind of I felt pretty happy with where I got to in the end in terms of who I spoke to. Mm. You mentioned, I mean, what, I mean, again, you kind of alluded to there your own memories of this player. You mentioned the top there. You kind of saw him in his in his Barnet. I, again, I, I'm the age I only saw him in, in his Barnet days. That's when you. Yeah, I remember the, the first season. I remember. I always. So it's 1968-69, so which was kind of Jimmy's last great season. He was the top scorer top in score the first again. division yeah. that year. So I remember him then, you know, through the goals that were on match of the day and the big match. Um, and my, my godfather was a massive Tottenham fan and named his cat Jim after Jimmy <laughs> Greaves. So I was kind of aware of Jimmy Greaves even before I really saw him play. Um, and then, yeah, I was, I was kind of watching Barnet a lot in the late 70s and pretty much saw Jimmy's whole career at, at Barnet, and, uh, which was s such huge fun. I mean, we didn't know at the start of it you know, what he was going through at the time, it, but, it, it, you know, it, it was, as a, someone who watched Barnet, to see Jimmy Greaves, one of the all-time greats, show up. And <laughs> the, Unhill, the but, famous sleeping And, and the great thing was about him, he... he Put in a shift. Really? He, yeah, he really worked his socks off. And, and they were non-league non side at that they time. Non-league side, yeah, and, and not even in the sort of top tier. And was he conspicuously classy in that company yes. even at that time? Yeah, yeah. He, he was. He played He played kind of deep midfield. He almost really? played that sort of quarterback so he, role. Oh, right. Spray the ball so around. Wow. And I think he really enjoyed that. Yeah. Because, it, it, you know, he'd never really had a chance to show... Those, those that kind side of, of his skills. Yeah. And also... He could be a nasty little bugger as well. Yeah, I mean, he was yeah. going in for, for tackles that, mm. you know, Norman Hunter used to say about him, you know, he, Jimmy Greaves couldn't tackle a hot dinner. But, I mean, he was going in and this, you know, everyone who's watched any non-league football, especially in the late 70s in the Southern League, knows it wasn't a place pretty for, brutal. You know, for, for sort of faint hearts. So Jimmy would get stuck in there and then he'd still get forward and, and score goals and was the top scorer. So he, it was a huge amount of fun just to yeah. watch him play there. Yeah. Amazing. Um, going back to his sort of his, his career... Um, which again, you, you go into obviously huge detail in the book. He was he was going to sign for Spurs originally, um, but that didn't happen. He ended up at Chelsea. What, 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 do you remember what happened there? He he was definitely leaning towards Spurs. He didn't um, he didn't he wasn't a massive fan of them, but they were his favourite sort of professional club. He used to watch a lot of the non-league teams around his area. He, he as you probably know, was sort of a barking Dagenham boy. Um, 
But Chelsea were very active in that area. They had a, a scout called Jimmy Thompson, and they used to pinch a lot of players out from under West Ham's noses. So people like Les Allen, who kind of grew up down the street from him, and Terry Venables, who was from the same district, they all ended up at Chelsea um, because of this one scout, Jimmy Thompson, who was very good. And I think it's one of those things that becomes sort of it's you know self-perpetuating once mm. you know that oh les allen from down the road has gone there and terry venables might go there and the, the people naturally from that area think all right you know chelsea seems to be the place right. to go so i think his dad was was a bit disappointed because he was a you know a bit of a spurs fan and wanted him to go there um but it was chelsea who got him um because he was i think his dad and whatever that era was probably the arthur rowe exactly the old era, and then rowe got ill didn't he yeah because arthur rowe you know they had lots of conversations mm. with arthur rowe arthur rowe got ill and kind of took more of a back seat and you know, at about the time that, that mm. Jimmy Thompson was knocking on Jimmy Greaves' door and sort of inviting himself in for a cup of tea. Um, and that's how he ended up at Chelsea. I mean, the other, obviously, before Tottenham was his bizarre time in Italy. Um, what was it about the culture then of Italian football that, that made it so difficult for him and just, in, in your book, in his books, he was effectively a, a prisoner? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it was a combination of things. For one thing... He kind of forced his move out of Chelsea. Chelsea, you know, he scored a load of goals there, but Chelsea were one of those teams at that time who if they scored four, the chances are the opposition were going to score six. And he was getting fed up with that. So he was looking for a move. Um, Chelsea didn't want to sell him to Tottenham, even though Tottenham were, were interested. So uh, Milan came in and offered him loads more money than he could make in England. A lot of money. A lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, and this is still the, the era of the maximum wage, 1960-61, the last season, £20 a week. And lo and behold, he signs for AC Milan, and a few weeks later, they abolish the maximum wage. So <laughs> he tries to get out of the he deal. He tried to stay, didn't Yeah, he, he tried, tried to stay. To he got a lawyer on it. You know, it went to court. He tried to get out of the contract, and he couldn't. So he's going there in the wrong frame of mind to yeah. start with. The club he's going to know that he doesn't really want to be there mm. and the manager doesn't really want him there he wanted to sign someone else um so <laughs> you know he, he's he's he a he doesn't like the culture they kind of the, the italian teams then they would kind of get locked away in sort of a two or three day training camp before every game which jimmy didn't like um no one would talk to him he couldn't speak the language they made no effort to kind of translate what was going on during team meetings so he was really was an outcast. Um, he felt he was being watched the whole time. Has, fa- has his family gone with him at this time? family went with him, right, yeah. Okay. His wife Irene went out with him, and, and he had sort of, uh, you know, one young child then. Um, another reason why he, you know, he thought about going to Italy was because he'd lost um, his first son who, yeah. when he was only six months old, and, and Jimmy thought that this might kind of give him a fresh start. Um, so it all kind of you know, didn't work out the way he wanted it to, and, and he was just miserable there, which, which makes it remarkable that he still scored nine goals in 12 games for Milan and was still their top scorer. Yeah. Um, but really was just kind of looking for a way out, really, from day one. Mm. But that worked out brilliantly for Tottenham because, of course, Chelsea weren't going to sell to Tottenham as a rival. They so had a buyback. They don't have a buyback sort of... Well, they tr- they tr- they, there wasn't a buyback. They tried to buy him back. Right. Um, and when I spoke to Tommy Doherty when I did his book, he said that he felt that Chelsea were never really serious about buying him back. They, they'd kind of banked the money the and they'd, money, they'd yeah. already spent it pretty much. Um, so even though they kind of went out there it, you know, ostensibly to try and sign him, the, the secretary went out there, almost had a brief, you know, whatever you do, make sure you don't do a deal <laughs> because we want to keep the money. Just make it look so, good. Yeah, so, you know, Bill Nicholson... <laughs> 
comes across and, and you know does a deal with the Italians who kind of made it a little bit difficult even right up to the end. I mean, mm. the, the, there were a few times when Jimmy, he didn't skip training, but he, w- he would kind of leave camp early. He'd kind of jump out a window in the hotel and go off, you know, to the seaside with his missus and everything. Yeah. Um, and the Italians sort of, you know, find him and said, look, if you keep doing this, we're going to stop your transfer because they'd pretty much by then agreed that they were going to have to get rid of him. Um, and so they made it difficult right up to the end. And, and, and Bill Nicholson, you know, one of the first things he said to, to Jimmy was that how difficult they'd made it for him to sign him. Uh, but eventually they did the deal famously for £99,999, mm. which wasn't because they didn't want Jimmy to be stuck with that, but Bill Nicholson didn't want to get the reputation as being the first man to spend £100,000. He, mm. you know, he, he didn't want to be saddled right. with Jimmy. He couldn't have cared less about the yeah. £1, yeah. But, but Bill Nick didn't want to do that. Well, I mean, the amazing thing again, you know, this, this is obviously our club had just won the double. And yet I think, like, you know, all great sides, you always look to improve things rather than we're great and whatever, you know. And so, and your interviews with, with some of the double team really showed that despite the success of the season before, they really welcomed him with open arms. You'd think maybe there was this kind of, we want to dig up double togetherness, mm. who's this guy coming yeah. in? But there's the, none of that, was there? Well, no, certainly from the interviews. No, and there was two elements that could have played into that. First of all, the publicity about Jimmy going to Italy had been pretty negative um, once it became clear that he didn't want to be there. The media really had no sympathy for him. Their view was, look, you made this deal, you went out for a load of money, you kind of put up with it. There's, you know, don't come crying to us that you don't like it in Italy. And so Jimmy was kind of fearful that that attitude would have got through to, to the players that he was going to join, the, the, the fans. Um, and it turned out to be completely the opposite. And then the aspect you talk about in terms of people worrying about their places, I mean, it was Les Allen who really kind of lost his place. And, and, and he, I spoke to him and he said, you know, everybody wanted Jimmy there because he, the, he was the best player in England pretty much at that time. Why would you not want him in his team? Mm-hmm. And I think the nature of professional footballers is that they all have enough confidence in their own ability that they think they're not going to be the one that loses their place. It's going to be someone else. So Les Allen was as, as happy as anyone else to see him, even though it turned out to be him that, that lost yeah. his place. So you know, I think Jimmy was sort of very relieved from you know, everyone I spoke to that, that he came back and found that both the fans and then the players were 100% on his side. I mean, his scoring record was incredible. In those early days, what do you think those, the, the, the team around him, the, the effect of the double team, and the way they play, what do you think they sort of gave and, and gained for, for, for his, 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 his career and the way he played football? I mean, you, you look at the players around him at that time and, and you've got Cliff Jones on the wing, you've got John White prompting for midfield, you've got Bobby Smith, who was a you know, fantastic target man and a great partner for Jimmy. Yeah, it was almost impossible for yeah. someone who was as good a goal scorer as Jimmy not to succeed in, in yeah. that team, especially when he had the ability to do so much on his own as well. So I don't think it was any great surprise to anyone how well he did. You know, he'd scored so many goals at Chelsea, who were, in a, who were not a great team. Um, you know, having that kind of cast of, of top players around him, mm. it was just, you know, it, it was... When he, when he came on the show and he talked about going there and he talked about the fact they'd won the double... And then he joined them. One of the things that always stuck in my mind, because he said it was complete, total conviction, like it wasn't even a remarkable thing to say. He said, yeah, we, we were basically the best football team in the world. 
It was as simple as that. And the way you just describe it, they had one of everything. Yeah. I mean, John White, incredible playmaker. You know, Bobby Smith, like you say, the ultimate big centre forward. Dave Mackay, the cultured enforcer. You know, and then you had, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Cliff Jones, you know, probably the best winger in Europe, you know, had everything. Mm. And you put Jimmy Greaves, this genius goal scorer. And as soon as he said it, you, you don't like to... No, you think, well, our club was the best team in the world. But when he says it, and then you, you think, yeah, it must have been. And I think most of the Spurs players of that era would, would probably say that they felt they underachieved in the end. Yeah, that well, they, he they said should that. have they won more won than just you know, yeah. one more FA Cup and yeah. one European Classic trophy. Tottenham. Best team um, in the world. Won very little. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What do you think was sort of, um, when you did these interviews, were there certain games that people talk about? Not so much greatest goals, but greatest games where people go, and then Jimmy did this, and then this happened, whatever. Were there certain games that people kept mentioning to you? I mean, everyone mentions the 63 final against, right. against Madrid in Rotterdam, yeah. and, and Jimmy himself said that that was the kind of best team performance he's ever been involved in. Um, but I think, interestingly, with Jimmy, it was about the goals. Jimmy wasn't necessarily someone who would dominate a game from the first minute to the 90th. You know, so many people said, especially people who used to play against him, you would feel like you'd marked him out of the game for 89 minutes and then suddenly in the 90th minute and the 91st, he'd prop up and score two goals and, yeah. and beat you. So I think it is more, people's memories are more about the goals. Um, a few of them happily sort of exist on YouTube. The, you know, the one that I start the book off describing, yeah. the, the goal in 65 against Manchester United when he kind of turned around and, and just ghosted past several players, put the ball past the goalkeeper. It's goals like that that people remember um, people remember we were talking earlier about the goal he scored against Leicester in, in 68, I think it was, that sadly wasn't mm. captured, but pretty much beat half the team from the halfway line. Mm. Um, I think it's those individual moments rather than Jimmy totally dominated the game yeah. that people mm. remember. The, um, obviously then you had the, the, the breakup of the double team and then the player that came in, you, you, you mentioned at the top of the show, was obviously a game with Blessed also been on the show. Uh, the late great Alan Gilzine. Why do you think they gelled so well? What was it about their styles that just worked so well? I think there's a few things. First of all, you're right. Their styles obviously complementary. Alan Gilzine was you know great target man, uh, and Jimmy sort of could play off him well. They developed a great friendship for one thing. Um, they developed a great understanding of what each other could do. But I think the key to it was that Gilzine was so good at what he did. So if the ball was kind of booted out by Jennings and Jimmy Greaves made his run, he knew that 95% of the time when Gilzine went up and won the ball in the air, he would actually mm. get it to where he knew Jimmy was going to be. You see so often now, you'll, especially when heading has probably become less of an art than it used to be, you know, the forward may well make the right run, but the guy who's flicking it on just can't get it to him. Whereas mm. Gilzine... I've, I don't know what anyone else thinks, but I've never seen anyone as good at directing the ball with their head as Alan Gilzine, mm. whether it was at near post from corners, whether it was from mm. clearances from Pat Jennings. So Greaves not only knew where Gilzine was likely to put it, but he knew that, as I said, 95% of the time it was going to mm. get there. Um, so I think if you combine that sort of telepathic partnership they mm. had with the fact that they were both the absolute best at what they did. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much an unbeatable combination. One of my favourite chapters of the book is, is the whole build-up and then the final, the 67 Cup final, 
and you really, really evoke that period well. At the time, it was obviously the first All London Cup final. Um, obviously, the famous the Cockney Cup final. What, what do you think was happening culturally in the capital then that, that made it such a big thing? And when you know, I, mean, I was born in '67, so I was read back at what you know. It was it was like all these worlds colliding, and for this centerpiece final. Yeah, I mean, it was almost kind of the end of that period. Right. So. You know, you had the whole swing in 60s in London and, you know, Mary Quant and everything else, sort of 64, 65. Then the World Cup seemed to mm. just be at the, at the epicentre of that, if you like. And, and then 67 was probably the year when it just sort of started to fade. And it was almost appropriate that that period ended with an all-London cup final, especially with, you know, a team like Chelsea who, you know, with people like Charlie Cook and, and Peter Osgood sort of epitomised that whole sort of swinging 60s yeah. London type image. Um, they were the team that had all the actors went to see them, Dickie Attenborough and mm. Michael Crawford and a lot of the younger ones like Richard O'Sullivan. They were sort of the trendy team. And, and Dave Mackay made a great comment in his autobiography that uh, uh, we were the guys who sort of wore cardigans and listened to Russ Conway records. <laughs> so there was that real kind of clash of styles. But I think it did. It was almost like the, it kind of bookended the, the end of that sort of swinging 60s. So it was, quite, it was really appropriate that it happened to be two London teams. Yeah, mm. that's nice. I mean, the other thing you cover brilliantly in the book is, is his England career. And obviously most people would just go, oh, yeah, he didn't play in the 66 Cup final. Um, what you go into detail is, is effectively a strained relationship with Sir Ralph Ramsey. Looking back, do you think Greaves was actually fairly treated by Ramsey, who obviously had his own views on how he wanted the national team to be set up, or do you think he was really pretty badly treated? It's a difficult one to know whether he was fairly treated or not. I mean, clearly they had a different outlook on the game. Um, Alf probably never really warmed to Jimmy as a player, despite all the goals he scored, because he wasn't Jimmy's kind of player. Now, was he unfair on him? I mean, Alf would be able to turn around and say, the guy I put in, in his place in the World Cup final yeah, scored a hat-trick and we yeah. won. So, you know, that it, it might have been harsh on Jimmy, mm. but was it unfair? Did he deserve to play? You know, Alf didn't think he did, and, and Alf was proved right. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say that under a different manager, Jimmy would probably have played a lot more games for England. Um, and whether England would have had the same success is difficult to know. You know, Alf wanted players who would play for the team. Um, Roger Hunt, Jeff Hurst were the you know, your ideal kind of Alf players. They would run and run. You know, the, the, the second goal in the semi-final against Portugal was a perfect example. Jeff Hurst really chased a lost cause, got the ball back from the byline, and, and Bobby Charlton scored. Probably not the kind of run that Jimmy would have made necessarily. So... It's difficult to know. They, they certainly had a strained relationship. Um, Alf probably discarded him too quickly because Jimmy was still... There's, there's this myth that's almost grown that Jimmy's career went downhill after 66, but he still scored 20-odd goals the next year, and then 68, yeah. 69 was the top, top scorer in Division yeah. One. Yeah. Um, and there was this sort of fallout between Alf and Jim over whether Jimmy had actually said he wanted to play for England anymore. Yeah. What Jimmy had said to him was that... If you're just going to bring me to sit on the bench or, or just kind of travel, then don't bother. I'd rather stay at home mm. and train with Tottenham. And Alf either 
deliberately or, excuse, or yeah, yeah. I, I deliberately chose to misinterpret that as I don't want to play for England anymore and it gave him an out and it gave mm. him an excuse not to pick him anymore but he, he's like um, one one in a whole long line isn't he of players like that those kind of creative geniuses that England managers have never like Stanley Matthews never played enough games for England when you consider his yeah. enormous talent right. and then later on we had Glenn Hoddle obviously and Gascoigne being ironically rejected by Hoddle yeah. later and everything yeah. and they're all it's the geni- maverick geniuses that for some reason England I mean Glenn Hoddle was describing we we're talking about Jimmy Greaves but it's a similar thing by Johan Cruyff as the player every manager in Europe wants apart from the England manager right and and Greaves you know was suffering from the same thing wasn't he from Ramsey I, I think he, he was um but but again, Ramsey has the ultimate comeback. Of course, of having unlike the all the Cup. others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's very easy to say Don Revy should have picked Frank Worthington and Stan Bowles and yeah. they might have done better. Yeah. Alf Ramsey can, can sit there and say, yeah. I, I can't do any Cup. better than that. I can't that. do it. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So it, it is... It is a shame. I, I would, personally, I'd have loved to have seen Jimmy Greaves and Jeff Hurst play together more mm. for England. I think they only played in the same team about three or four times. Mm. And that's no knock on Roger Hunt, because Roger Hunt was you know, a fine player, player and, and, and a real Af Ramsey player. But it would have been nice to see Jimmy play more. I mean, th- th- I think there was a comment someone made around that time where they looked at the people who played alongside Jimmy for England, and they never felt that those players really achieve what they could have done and, and gave of their best. And in the end, you, okay, what's the common denominator here? Maybe it's Jimmy Greaves. Right. So maybe it's Greaves who isn't the, the too right Too much of an individual, too yeah. much of a maverick. Absolutely. Particularly for the way that Alf wanted to set up his team. And yet he wasn't incapable of having partnerships, as we know, because of the partnership he had with Gilzine and, yeah, but and he, arguably with Bobby but he, Smith. You know, Alf wanted players who would kind of run and chase back and players yeah, that yeah. would, and he was never that. would, would yeah. run around hard in training and yeah, yeah. and be seen to be towing the line. Do you think, which... this might be a bit trite or something, but do you think he was a bit more intelligent than your average footballer and he was just wasn't having it? He wasn't going to be an automaton. He just didn't, he couldn't fully bring himself to respect the authority enough because he, he felt like he was slightly above it. I don't mean in an arrogant or narcissistic way, just that he was that type of personality. Yeah, and I think, and I think the other thing was, he, he said himself, he was... He was never a massive football fan. Yeah, you know, he, he said that to he us. To be, he had to be good at football. Yeah. yeah, I think he had. You know, there were a few more things in his life. You know, yeah, he had business interests, yeah. and he had you know other things going on. And um, and again, someone like Alf Ramsey probably couldn't understand how someone who was a professional footballer couldn't be how, how, how that wasn't the, the be all and end all yeah. of their existence. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll continue this conversation after this very short break. Hi, it's Garth Crooks here. I'm looking forward to seeing many of you at the Spurs Show Christmas Party on December the 2nd at the 100 Club, alongside my old striking partner, Steve Archibald. I suppose I'll be doing all the work again. see Crooks and Archibald in their first Central London appearance together since hanging up their Spurs boots 35 years ago. Spurs Show season ticket holders get an automatic ticket with priority entry, with tickets also available at live.spursshow.net. No one does Christmas like the Spurs Show, except perhaps Bing Crosby and Jesus. Get your tickets at live.spursshow.net or get free entry to all our live Spurs shows at season.spursshow.net.
Right, we're back after the uh, interval. Uh, don't forget, um, you can get additional premium Spurs show content, uh, daily Spurs news shows, match reports, interviews with ex players. Just go to patreon.com slash Spurs show, try it for a month and support the show. Right, uh, before the break, we were just talking about, well, we were just really coming to that sort of 68, 69 period. Um, where you mentioned he was top scorer. He, I think it's still a record. He was top scorer for six different seasons in the top flight, which I think to this day hasn't been better, does it? Six no, it seasons. Hasn't, no. Yeah, Incredible, you record. think about it. Mm. It's an absolutely remarkable yeah. record. Yeah. You know. Not even Alan Shearer. I mean, you think of the other candidates. You think of the great players who've not done that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. amazing. And then when he left, I mean, again, Theo touched upon various things we mentioned to him. We interviewed him in 2000. 13, I think yeah. it was, something like that. When we asked him about leaving Tottenham and, and, and the circumstances behind it, it was extraordinary to watch a man over 50 years on, still you could see rancor with him. Mm. He, every Spurs football event, he's probably asked the same question. So, you know, because when, what was interesting, when we, he didn't know anything about us and what the show was. Right. And when backstage, he thought he was doing his usual sort of cabaret patter, which are basically quite distasteful, borderline <laughs> racist jokes that you can't get away with anymore. And we were like, no, 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 we're just going to ask you that. So you don't want me to do X, Y, and Z? No, 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 don't. We're just going to ask you questions. Oh, okay. So when it got to that stage about what was it like, you could see how he was still really bitter about it and mm. how he was treated about mm. again you couldn't say goodbye to anyone the no. boots were left outside white heart lane everyone had gone off train i mean it was mm. just extraordinary yeah you know do you think it was kind of too soon or do you think again maybe speaking to people around him mm. you, you know i think the interesting thing is that i spoke to a few players at spurs obviously at that mm. time a lot of them weren't over surprised that it happened okay. you know he'd been out of the team for a while right. um he'd been dropped um Obviously, Chivers was now playing. Yeah. So people could see... Chiv, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, people could see that the writing was on the wall a little bit. So, you know, someone like Steve Perryman, who was new to the team and was kind of could, could view things almost as an outsider, you know, wasn't over-surprised when he went. Um, and I think Jimmy, at the time, thought it, you know, it might be the best thing for him. Bill Nicholson came to him on deadline day and said, Ron Greenwood wants to speak to you. He met him outside Romford Dogs Stadium. Did a deal. Okay, I'm going to go and play with Bobby Moore and Jeff Hurst. It's my local team. Mm. It didn't seem that bad. I think it's all. It's. I think it's a little bit more in hindsight that, that right. Jimmy realised that actually this is probably the worst thing he could have done right. for various reasons. One, West they Ham weren't a very good team. Weren't a very good team <laughs> yes. for one thing. Um, secondly, the and yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. The culture he found there. Um, which was a, a, an even heavier drinking culture than he'd had at, at Tottenham, was almost the last thing he needed because he was at the stage of his life when he was sort of starting that sort of descent into alcoholism. So to suddenly go to a bunch of guys who just wanted to be in the pub, mm. you know, wasn't great. You know, people said his first training session, you know, Harry Redknapp said he, he went into the Slater's Arms across the road and seven hours later he was still there and they said okay we know what we're getting here and yes jimmy obviously likes to drink um so i think there was a combination of things that, that made him realize that actually hadn't been the, the best move mm. he always said that he, he regrets that 
it was never followed up that there were there were conversations about him possibly going to Derby. There was talk that Brian Clough might have been interested in him, and neither Clough nor Greaves or Spurs ever really pursued that. And he always wondered what might have happened to his mm. career and potentially to his life had he kind of got out of top, out, yeah. out of London, yeah. gone played to Derby, under I mean, played under Clough. Yeah, like yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so. when, when you cover then the periods about his, his alcoholism. Was that difficult? Because again, you know, as a, you know, a sports writer, you're now talking about stuff which isn't purely sport. How difficult was it then to sort of sit down and ask people, did you notice anything or? Well, the first thing I had to decide was how to treat it in the book in terms of where I placed it, what importance I gave it. It would have been very easy to start the book with a description of Jimmy on his knees, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, in the in the back garden, yeah. going through the bins, trying to find a, the that last might have drop been of the vodka. opening scene in the movie. Exactly, yeah. but I felt that would do a disservice to Jimmy, and almost wouldn't be a, a, an accurate reflection of the place that alcoholism had in his life. Mm. Jimmy was a great footballer. Then he had various years of being an alcoholic, and then he left it behind and moved on. And it didn't become something that really defined who he was. Mm. Now, you look at someone like Tony Adams, who, for very positive reasons, is almost identified now yeah. through his, his battle against alcoholism yeah. and what he's done since then and what he's done to help other people in, in similar circumstances. So when you see Tony Adams, you almost think of, about that before you think of you know, the, the cups and the trophies he mm. won at Arsenal and the England caps. Jimmy didn't want to be defined like that and, and made sure he wasn't. So I didn't feel it would be appropriate to define the book in that same way. So yeah. I wanted the, the story of his alcoholism, as important as it was, to really kind of just sit within the chronology of his life in the way that, that Jimmy allowed it to sit within the chronology mm. of his life. Now, you're right, it, it is interesting talking to people. What was most interesting was, was how few people within football realised how bad it was, you know, because he, it really became bad once he left football. Right. And it was almost the reason he, let, he gave up football. You know, you hear a lot of people, famous footballers, who can't cope with life after their career and alcoholism becomes almost, you know, a crutch and a natural thing they lead into. Jimmy almost retired so he could become a full-time alcoholic. Really? You know, in the end, football was kind of getting in the way and he was yeah. thinking more about his next drink than his next game. Right. And, and he just wanted to be clear of football. Um, he had business interests, which he ended up pretty much ignoring after a while. He would, he would go and his typical day early in his sort of post-football career was a couple of hours at work and then he'd spend the rest of the day kind of going around the pubs in Essex. And then gradually he would start taking his drinking home and it was bottles of vodka being hidden away. Mm. But it was all done largely privately. It was still, you know, the era when people weren't going around with mobile phones and taking pictures of mm. Jimmy walking out mm. of a supermarket with a, a bottle of vodka. Mm. Um, so people in football, because Jimmy had divorced himself from football, I think were, had no idea quite how bad it had got. And it was really only his close family and his close friends who actually realised mm. what, a, what a, you know, a, a real desperate situation yeah. he'd got himself into. I mean, the, the, the later chapters you talk about his TV career, which again, listeners of a certain age will remember more than his playing careers. You kind of forget that again, what, what the book sort of jogged my memory was what a massive TV personality yeah. he was with Ian St. John. Yeah. And clearly the forerunner of Soccer AM. Yeah, um, they were the first mm. humorous. Skin and Badil, yeah. 
all these things. It was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely huge. It was a breath of fresh air, wasn't but it? But it started quite small and, and, and quite timidly. And again, by accident, he, yeah. you know, and again, one of the reasons for calling the book natural was that everything Jimmy did was, was, was natural and it mm. wasn't planned. Mm. He had no ambition to become a TV personality. You know, he'd given up the drink. He gave up the drink in the end because a newspaper found out and, and broke the story and, and he, he eventually realised that I am now in the spotlight, you know. In fact, it was the best thing that could have happened to him, that it came out and he then realised that all eyes of the world were on him and he had to do something about it. And it was only a month after the story broke that he took his last drink. Really? And never And, and never that was in 1978? 1978. And when did he stop playing for Barnet? Um... 79, 79. Right, so, he, so, so all, he, through, all through the alcoholism, he was playing for Bayern. Uh, not for Bayern. He had a few years when he wasn't playing at all. Then okay. he came back, played for Brentwood and oh, Chelmsford okay. and then Barnet. Okay. Uh, and he kind of came back to football, to non-league football, because he thought it might be a way of helping, helping him combat him, the, yeah. the, the, the that, alcoholism. That, that, again, that's very much of its time, isn't it? Because you don't get former super, superstars, world-class <laughs> players, suddenly turning up playing... In the yeah. in, in non-league, Do and the people at Barnet, the, you know, the, the players didn't really know what what state he was in. The, the yeah. manager and the chairman did, and one of the first speeches that Billy Meadows, the Barnet chairman, gave to the players was that you know we signed Jimmy Greaves. There might be some days when we don't see him. Didn't right. really say why. So but, they knew. But, and there yeah. were a few occasions, but if you look yeah. at his appearance record, he played most of the games. But anyway, so having given up the drink, it was really um, he was asked to do a documentary about. His fight against alcoholism, which is a fantastic piece of TV, if you ever get I've a chance to see it. I've never seen it. Yeah, called, I've never you know, heard just, about just, it. Just, to, just for today, I went to the British Film Archives right. and, and watched it. Um, and it was his performance on that, where he's talking directly to the camera most of the time about his battle against alcoholism, that actually made the folks at ATV, as it was then, the guys who do the, did the TV in the Midlands, Billy Wright and Gary Newborn, uh, looked at that and said. They were looking for a new pundit, and they said, well, Jimmy looks good on camera. He looks like he can mm. handle it. Let's give him a go. So Jimmy went up, took a chance. First couple of episodes he did, he, he said he was terrible. You know, he couldn't read an autocue, couldn't mm. follow the script. Jimmy had suffered from dyslexia as well, so he obviously autocue was going to be a problem. And in the end, they said, Jimmy, okay, just, just be yourself. Mm. Forget mm. about scripts. Have mm. a few notes. And it just suddenly clicked, mm -hmm. and and he did become this personality. Yeah. And, and and it was completely new, like you say, Mike. It was like we hadn't seen that before, but it was a mm. forerunner of all that sort of light-hearted football coverage, and it was a real breath of fresh air at the time. I think one of the, the one of the ways you know that he was so big a star was uh, him and Ian St John had their own spitting image puppets. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which were great. And he had all those catchphrases. Yeah. It's a funny yeah. old game. And, that, so. and that, was, that wasn't even... That originally wasn't Jimmy's catchphrase. They, they, right. did, um, they decided to do a, a thing on the TV where Jimmy would be interviewed by his spitting image puppet. Right. And so, it was, so it was actually Harry Enfield who was under the table <laughs> so as Enfield. the Jeremy... Im <laughs> and they got, they got to the end of it and they hadn't really scripted how they were going to finish it. Yeah. So Jimmy had said something... And so then it was almost, it was Jimmy's puppet's turn to say something. Yeah. And Harry Enfield didn't really know what to say. So he just that. turned the puppet to the, to, the, to the camera and said, it's a funny old game. Yeah. And that was it. And that, that suddenly became yeah, Jimmy's brilliant. catchphrase, brilliant. even though it was the puppet that had said it first. Peter Brackley also was a And then person. Peter Brackley, yeah, Peter Brackley yeah. did him in later years after That's Harry right. And Peter Brackley, um, they, they, again, when, when Jimmy had um, flu one time, and again, this is a, a clip that is available on YouTube, Jimmy was sick, um, and so they put the spitting image puppet in to do something crazy in it. And again, it was Peter Brackley under the desk <laughs> doing it. And, 
and taking the mickey great. out taking the mickey out of, of jimmy in yeah. a really affectionate way and yeah. talking about goal celebrations and you yeah. know peter would say oh, yeah well our celebration was you know five pints of lager and, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. so jimmy yeah. wasn't afraid for, to people yeah. sort of to poke fun at his yeah, alcohol yeah. he was able to laugh at himself yeah, absolutely but also he, he was the first person that i always remember he always referred to West Ham as the Appiamas, yeah. and I've always called him well, that. That's, since. that's why, because gently you know, condescending yeah. way of talking about West Ham. How'd the Appiamas get on? Well, yeah, that was because when he was there, all yeah, they, they were all... pretty much was was drink. You know? yeah. Famous incident at Blackpool when they when him and Bobby Moore and, and Clyde Best and Brian Deere went out late that night before the, the they, cup thought, they thought the game was going to be called off. It's the famous great story. They thought the game was going to be called off. Oh, so they thought we might as well go out, out and, and then all of a sudden the back and see the game's on and they're all half cut. Is it the book anyway? Um, bringing it forward now, you know, nowadays Spurs fans see the emergence of another goal screen legend, Harry Kane. Apart from also being brilliant at putting the ball in the net, can you see these sort of similarities between the two? Have you had to sort of look at stuff? And in terms of style of play, anyone I, I else, wouldn't say so. Anyone else agrees with similar to I mean, the, one, the name that kept cropping up without me prompting anyone was, was Messi. Messi. Because of the way that he could get the ball 30, 40 yards out, beat a load of players, go into the box and score a goal. Mm. And I don't think we see Harry Kane score too many goals like no. that. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, Harry is the kind of player, and you were talking about it on an earlier show about, uh, Harry can bring players, other players into the game mm. to a greater, great, much greater extent that, than Jimmy mm. Greaves could have done. Um, and I think, you know, Harry could probably score goals from 25 yards more than, than mm. Jimmy could. So th- I think they're different kinds of players. Yeah. Um, obviously both fantastic players in, in a different ways. But yeah. Messi was definitely the name that, that kept coming up all the time about, you know, Jimmy's his pace over five or ten yards and his, his ability to escape that first tackle... And keep the ball sort of tied to his shoelaces, pretty mm. much. Um, that close control. That's why people kind of are reminded of Messi, and the fact yeah. that he can, he could, even though he might not have been a great tackler, he could, he could take a tackle. He was, wasn't was tough. He, he wasn't easy to knock yeah. off the ball. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think those comparisons are there. Yeah. Try and sum up then after completing the book how you felt about Jimmy after doing all this work. Once you sort of went, yep, done in. I was. Um, I guess I was very proud to have had the chance to to write about him and, and had the, the go-ahead from his family for, for a start. Um, and I think, you know, my respect for him grew enormously. I, you know, I've, I was a fan of his at Barnet, so I always kind of loved Jimmy. Um, but to hear people say nothing but good things about him, mm. um, you know, it does make you realise what a, what a fantastic guy he was. And then also... That sadness, you know, I, I was, I was, had breakfast with Jimmy's family, and, and Jimmy was there, and it is, was very sad to see how he was. Mm. You know, he was, he was very robust physically, and kind of put away a full English breakfast mm. without any um, <laughs> any problem. But you know, fifty percent of the conversation, he was kind of nodding and smiling in the right places. Fifty percent of the time, you know, you weren't really sure how where he was. Um, so I think it, it was a kind of mix of emotions, really. Mm. But certainly came away with probably even more respect for him as a player than, I, than I'd gone into it. And, and, and as a man, you know, it is lovely when people think as an author, you want people just to dish the dirt on people. Mm. But, you know, that's, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book that was true to Jimmy's life story, tell it how it was, and happily, it, it's, it's pretty much a story of a, a lovely guy 
who was fantastic at what he did in various different fields, showed a great amount of personal courage and discipline in overcoming what he went through in the middle, middle of his life. And rightly is kind of loved by pretty much every football fan of any age and of, and of any team allegiance. That's lovely. Thank you very much, David. But, um, lastly, where can listeners get the book from? All the usual places, all the usual bookstores, all the usual online, Amazon and everyone else. So, uh, yeah. It is literally the perfect Christmas gift. Absolutely. Go and get it. It's called Natural, the Jimmy Greaves story. Ladies and gentlemen, show your appreciations to David Tassell. Thank you. Thank you. Listening at home, we'll be back next Wednesday again. We're live from the Beehive Pub in Tottenham N17 with Graham Roberts. We'll be looking back at the Everton game. Uh, and, well, when we record it, it will be before the Red Star. So we'll certainly be looking back at the Everton game. Uh, so come and find us there or join us. Go to season.spurshow.net. Until then, come on, you Spurs. Thank you. Thank Come and see Crooks and Archibald in their first Central London appearance together since hanging up their Spurs boots 35 years ago. Spurs show season ticket holders get an automatic ticket with priority entry, with tickets also available at live.spursshow.net. No one does Christmas like the Spurs show, except perhaps Bing Crosby and Jesus. Get your tickets at live.spurshow.net or get free entry to all our live Spurs shows at season.spurshow.net. This is a playback media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at spurshow.net. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.